Mark and hi. this is hi right it's just me and Mark today because Jasmine's having dinner with her sister so she has priorities but she will be taking part in the next one it's just schedules and that <laughs> <laughs> so this week uh this is probably going to be mostly Mark talking about this topic because I'm going to be honest with you I can't get my stupid head around this topic so hopefully Mark can explain it and enlighten us all and we'll oh. just go on this journey together about collective consciousness and maybe afterwards we'll all become one. Yes, definitely. I, I've also been, to be fair, struggling to get my head around it. But as I said to you, I have an absolute ton of notes because I found it weird and interesting. I didn't actually find the initial collective consciousness research and information that interesting, if I'm being honest. So like, if you're listening and we get about 10 minutes in and you're like, this is not, I'm not enjoying this as much as usual, bear with me. Because I feel like after I've given the initial stuff, then when I started to look at the stuff that sort of grows out of it, like you were saying about uh, the work of Carl Jung, yeah, then I started to find it interesting. But the actual initial thing, yeah, I didn't know that much about and it, it hurt my head a bit and it seemed a bit boring, but then better as you go on. So I'm like Dr. Fraser Crane in this scenario because I'm all about Sigmund Freud and you'll be Niles Crane because he was all about Jung. And also if we were characters from... Fraser? Yeah, you would be Fraser and I would be... I would be, be yeah. <laughs> and maybe would be Daphne. <laughs> I think um, there'd be Niles and Daphne. I think I'm more like, well, I think I'm a combination of Fraser and his dad. Because I say, oh, geez, a lot. And I'm a bit rough around the edges, but I, I can also be a, an extremely pretentious snob. So I, think, I wouldn't definitely say Fraser. But I agree that if you were a combination of two characters from Fraser, you would be Fraser and the dad. And I would be. You'd be Niles and Daphne. Yeah, definitely. Do they have a baby at the end? Maybe I am Niles and Daphne's baby. Actually, that's true. They did. <laughs> Did Fraser and his dad have a baby at the end? No. You might be that incest baby. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, should I start talking about collective consciousness? Yeah, please. Maybe if people get bored, I can just play some comedy sounds in between you talking about it. Yeah, like a fart soundboard. People love that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. So as I said, like the idea of collective consciousness itself isn't really the bit that I found that interesting. And also as you were saying before we started recording, like doesn't really seem to be mythological or mysterious. But it's but then I think quite a lot of interesting theories that relate to something that could be mythological or mysterious do come out of it. So the actual idea of collective consciousness was originally created by the sociologist 
Emil Durkheim in 1893. Durkheim? The Dur- king of the Dur. Uh, k- Kime of the, the Dur. <laughs> king of, king of the Dur. Okay. Yeah, that was what he was known for. And the, the idea... This isn't a great <laughs> I know, it was really entertaining. <laughs> We're talking about how we're going to bore our listeners. And then there's a guy who's literally got Dur in his name. Uh, and he is, the, he's the, the very Dur bit of it. So his idea was, I say that, I mean, it's still quite an interesting idea, I suppose. His idea is basically that there's some sort of unifying unseen collective. I've put thought bubble, not his words, because I couldn't really understand what he was saying. But I think that's what he means. Like there's a big cartoon thought bubble, but everyone shares it. And it's real. And we can't see it. And it connects all people. But he said that there's also one that like connects all, I can't remember the exact example, so I'm going to say (laughs) random things. All hamsters. All geese. And plants. (laughs) All frogs. Yeah, all plants. So, um, yeah, he thinks that all of these species all have a collective consciousness. And that means that they all share some beliefs, some ideas. And in the case of humans, we all share some moral attitude. Right. Now, I was thinking, like, years ago when I used to, well, I still kind of read them now and again, but, like, when I was right into the, this is going to be sound off topic, but it's not, when I used to read the Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice, the, you know, Queen of the Damned, there was a description of Akasha, who was, like, the Queen of the Vampires, she was, like, the first vampire, the original source, and she described how, because she's the source, all the other vampires are connected to her, and she can see them in like a, a massive web across the world they're all connected and I thought hmm that sounds like you could say that about humans and then I started thinking well what if all humans I actually started believing that all humans were linked psychically but we just couldn't tap into it so we're I all mean, that is totally yeah the same thing like if vampires right. were real then mm. I think Durkheim would say that they would all share a collective consciousness which I suppose is this like psychic link so yeah I suppose it is like like a big giant psychic spider web yeah I have to dumb it down for myself otherwise I'll just my brain will be scrambled yeah I mean I read like the bit that I just read about the thought bubble that was about like 45 minutes worth of reading and eventually (laughs) just like thought bubble because yeah like it's really 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 confusing and the other thing that I'd say on it as well and you will be blown away by this is that actually when I was reading about it, I don't think I agree with him at all for the first time ever. Some of the stuff that comes off of it, I think that is kind of convincing. So some of the ideas that will go on and discussed by other people, I'm maybe sold on. But yeah, his idea, I'm not convinced. And the reason I don't agree with this theory is because of the four most common examples of it that I think clearly aren't real. But I'm going to read them to you mm-hmm. and you can tell me what your thoughts are on them as well. Okay. Like an right. exciting fun game. Um, I feel like we, that really is very, like, Fraser-y. Um, I'm listening. <laughs> you're going to tell me what thoughts pop into your head when I read it. Right, so example one. one of the, so the first example that comes out of this is that we all know in ourselves what a quote-unquote man should act like and what a quote-unquote woman should act like. So that's one of the first bits of evidence. So all women think about kittens and embroidery and men think of like trucks and fucking? Basically, yes. That seems to be what he's saying. (laughs) So I think like right off the bat when I read that, especially as someone that would class it was queer, I was a bit like, right, no, I 
don't in any way identify traditionally as a man, so... What, what do you identify as? This confuses me. Uh, I don't really know if I identify as anything. I mean, I suppose, like, yeah, biologically speaking, a male. But even if you take it to be like, if he was talking about biologically speaking, well, biologically speaking, does everyone who's male act exactly the same? No, because my boyfriend doesn't like football and the stereotype of, like, you know, blokes love football and stuff and sports, but he's not interested. That doesn't yeah. make him any less of a man. I'd say David's more stereotypically manly than I am, but I wouldn't oh, say yeah. he's a typical man. Like, oh. I'd say you're more stereotypically manly than I am. <laughs> Probably <laughs> am, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think just, yeah, like if you think about queer people, non-binary people, I, and I think it's a bit kind of, it's very like European-centric as well. Like, it's just the idea of what do people in Europe traditionally class as a manly quality or a feminine quality, right, that everyone agrees on that. And I think, well, if you were to travel to other places in the world, when was he writing? 1893? Yeah, 1893. Both agree that, or is it just me? I think example one's a load of old pish. No, I agree with that because even in the 19th century, although I suppose there were more binary terms in in, in terms of men and women, there were still sort of an underground scene of queer people and people who, you know, women would, would dress up as men and men dress up as women, but it wasn't obviously as widespread as it is or exposed as it is today because they don't have the internet. They've just got, like, papers and telegrams and such things. Yeah, they, but it's still, as you say, it still existed. So, yeah, hmm. right off the bat, right, I don't agree with example one. Then there's example two. So, again, this is why he's saying we all clearly share this kind of collective consciousness. So we have laws we all agree upon, which are there to socialise people on what we all know is right. So what are your thoughts mm. on Yeah, but it depends on who makes up the laws because you get like laws that are based on religion in some countries. And again, is he just talking about Europe? Or it's hard to generalise something like that because you can get dictatorships and or is he just meaning like morally and general or does he actually mean the rule of law I, I, I get, yeah that was kind of my issue with this one is exactly that that i'm like right yeah for example you me and yaz would probably agree on what we think most things should be legally mm. but he's not really being very clear as you say like well, people in other parts of the world might view laws slightly differently and then the whole idea that laws change as well, like women used to not be allowed to vote, so... Yeah, and then that. you've got, like, Nazi Germany who put into law that Jews couldn't have jobs and they weren't allowed to go to school. Are, are we supposed to all think that that's right? Yeah, and then that's where it then doesn't make sense because I'm like, right, if if we know that's wrong, does that mean that really Hitler knew that was wrong but he was just pretending not to? Or does it mean that, as you say, or does it mean everyone should agree with Hitler? So yeah, again, I think that's a load of pish. Or if you take it to the like the modern day, like the, the 2020 perspective with the pandemic, you know, like Michael Sturgeon is saying in the Scottish government, right, everyone in Scotland needs to, um, you know, wear masks. And she's saying all these things like well before Westminster, like Boris Johnson saying it. And then you get like the staunch unionists who'll say, well, I'm not listening to her. I'm just going to wait till what Boris says so they don't wear masks until Boris Johnson says it like four weeks later so you get all these wee fannies <laughs> you've got all these different 
people obeying different laws according to their own personal beliefs. Yeah, totally. And so that doesn't work. Again, if he's implying it's global, well, we live in a tiny island. Yeah, okay, there's an awful lot of people that live here. But it is a, we live on an island. So if you compare us to other countries, then we live in a bit of an island if we're just talking about Scotland. So yeah, if you're comparing us to other countries, then well, we can't even agree amongst ourselves whether yeah. Scotland, and are you? the leader of <laughs> the island or the leader of the country. So yeah, again, pish, 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 pish. Thing number three that we apparently all universally agree on uh, we have agreed upon ways to celebrate big holidays and events that everyone follows, such as the correct way to carry out a wedding and the correct way to celebrate a birth. What's the correct way to celebrate a birth? Go to church, christen? I don't, I don't know. Go, go to the pub and wet the baby's head? Like, I'm just thinking of old-timey traditions that might be still relevant today, but don't really... Again, maybe it just doesn't apply now, because back then, weddings were generally you know in churches they didn't really have registry weddings and does he count funerals in that celebrate obviously you're not yeah, celebrating yeah, someone yeah. dying but yeah, customs were listed in it as well christmas stop being annoying phone right it won't let me google where he's from but i'm going to say yeah he's not he's not british anyway i don't know but i think i think amongst that christmas would probably be one because even if you're not a Christian, people are still forced to sort of celebrate Christmas or why you're deemed a Scrooge or a weirdo or something. So that's a sort of collective consciousness. But then even that is a collective consciousness. Forced totally on. <laughs> in a Christian country, but not even really like, because there are some Christians that don't celebrate Christmas. Jehovah's or Jews? Well, oh no, yeah. they're not. They're not Christians. Shit. <laughs> But no, but Jehovah's don't, you're right, that like Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate, well, they don't celebrate Christmas in the traditional sense. They mm. celebrate the birth of Christ, but they don't exchange presents. So there isn't even an agreement on that. And then there are other groups of Christians that don't celebrate it at all because it's not actually when Christ was born. So yeah, again, I think he's talking absolute pish there. The last one that he uh, highlighted was, and also there are pieces of music such as the national anthem of your country, that unite everyone in one feeling. Mm, as definitely. And the feeling of patriotism. Oh, fuck that. I definitely disagree with that. Especially the um, the official, like, I'd say Britain, British, you know, national anthem, God Save the Queen, which a lot of Scottish people detest for what it represents. Basically represents yeah. colonialism. And there's literally a line in there that they don't want to really sing anymore. But it's there, rebellious Scots to crush, God save the Queen. Yeah, that's real nice. I mean, I agree, it was but I don't want to be crushed. Yeah, but it was because it was written just after the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, um, when they defeated Bonnie Prince Charlie and um, his attempt to reclaim the throne for the Stuarts, and because he was Catholic, that was bad. Uh, obviously, it was mostly Highlanders that got crushed. So that's why they put that in celebration. That's when that was written around about that time. I think they added that on, actually. I mean, I think, yeah, okay, there probably are people in Scotland that, for the reasons you point out, nonsensically, but that probably do feel patriotic when they hear... Oh, yeah, like my dad. Yeah, like, you don't, I don't. Fuck that. And we both consider ourselves to be Scottish, so... Mm. But even our national anthem, I find it a bit dull. Also, it just harks back to 
a time that's not relevant anymore. I think it needs refreshed. I mean, yeah. we're we're singing about Blumen sending King Edward home to think again, a king that was around a bit was around in the 13th century. Yeah, uh, and we're not free yeah, anymore. So why are we singing about that when and and you know, the hypocrites that sing that at football games, all the ones that voted no, and they're singing about freedom in Scotland's international anthem, absolute cheek. But again, lots of people wouldn't agree with us. So yeah, so, so that's pish. Durkheim is is wrong but that's the boring Durkheim bit over with um so actually he knows fuck all about collective consciousness because none of what he said uh makes any sense yeah i think really easily knocked down like it's quite clearly pish Pish, Mm -hmm. pish, pish. but i think there are a couple of like intriguing ideas that come out of it that Mm -hmm. i'm more into so I've got notes on four different ideas that I want to talk about. So one of the people that worked on his work is Mary Kelsey. Uh, she's a sociologist and she published a paper in 2000 of her research into shared ritualistic experiences and dance parties. Also like, like, calls them like dance a rave? Parties. Yeah, like a rave. So like not the collective consciousness of everyone in the world, but the collective consciousness of everyone at a rave or of everyone at like a religious gathering. When you say everyone at a rave, are you talking about everyone off their tits on eckies experience the same thing? Kind that, of. So I've never been to a proper rave of you. I bet you have. You used to party back in the day, didn't you, Mark? You're uh, a raver. Was partial to we rave when I was younger, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, when I was reading her paper, yeah, no, okay. I've also been to like religious ritual gatherings, and yeah, I kind of get what she's saying on both. So I'll kind of summarise what she okay. said as along okay. the lines of what you're saying. So her ideas kind of link back to what we discussed weeks ago when we were talking about the Axis Mundi, and when we were talking about the mind I was telling you about the soma mushroom or the soma plant so it was like the plant that the people of the Indus Valley used to consume during religious rituals and they also worshipped it as a god but they don't it doesn't exist anymore basically it was like consumed off the face of the earth oh okay so like the Romans did that the Romans did that with a certain plant that was used to as a contraceptive it worked really well to the point where they just Used it out of existence. We people do like to, to consume everything. <laughs> yeah, she believes that when religious communities trip or reach a heightened state, and she said that this in more modern times can be applied to like a rave, as you said, where the majority of people, not necessarily everyone, but the majority of people are tripping. She said this at a religious gathering or at a, as her words dance party causes everyone to reach a heightened state so it doesn't if you're there you get caught up in it it doesn't actually matter if you're consuming drugs or it mm. doesn't matter if you believe in the god that this worship's directed towards you get caught up in this heightened state of consciousness right okay i can buy into that so i mean i'm not overly religious at all but see when i see you know those um, evangelical places the what like, like the ones at the Blues Brothers where it's all yeah yeah happy, like clappy. churches yeah like oh, what is it it's mostly black music like kind of black choirs where Whitney Houston 
probably started out, you know, and that sort of thing. What is it called? Is I really it, thought is it you were where Whitney Houston sings, just yeah. all of the time you summon the ghost of Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the ritualistic experience. It's a big, it's a big show. So you know, the, sometimes I'm flicking through the channels at night, and I come across all these mad Christian ones, and it's actual like stadiums full of people, and they're all there just look like they're all in ecstasy. But are they all feeling the same thing, or are they all just going along with it, or they actually think that they are feeling the power of Christ through them or something? Well, she said that they are all going along with it, but. Basically, she was saying, like, so the, the soma experience or the can be compared to, like, what you're talking about, right? So she said, if everyone takes soma, they think they've tapped into the Axis Monday, right? They think they can see an mm-hmm. unseen. Or if you're at a massive, um, like, Christian gathering where everyone's involved in mass like worship, healing. everyone healing. thinks, yeah, they think they're connecting with God. They think they can be healed through God. And she said that's not actually what's happening. What she believes is happening is that everyone who's, because they're involved in such a similar experience, you're able to tap into each other's minds. So not seeing another reality, you're seeing someone else's, or everyone else at the one time that's with you, perception of reality. And it's not God that's healing you. It's everyone that's wanting God to heal you that's That's healing you. That's just blowing my fucking mind, actually. Like, wow. That's, I, I'm well into that. So one of the examples she gave that I thought was a really good one that seems to make sense to me is as the Soma plant started to run out, only the shaman that was conducting the ceremony would take Soma, but everyone that was there would be able to see this altered version of reality, supposedly, right? They all tapped into the Axis Mundi. And what she said is she thinks in those ancient ceremonies, she believed that, Um, A good example is the idea of the Soma communities. And when the Soma started to run out, it would only be the shaman that was leading the service that would take the Soma. So only really the shaman would be hallucinating if it was a hallucinogenic, which most modern botanists think it was. But everyone that was part of that religious gathering would all say that they'd been able to see into this other reality, that they'd been able to see beyond the Axis Mundi. And what she believes is that the Axis Mundi isn't actually real. Nobody's seen into other realities, but everyone has a shared consciousness that's involved in the ceremony. So the shaman is hallucinating and everyone else can see his or her hallucinations. Wow. Is there something similar where people have the same dreams, but are at the other side of the world? I mean, have you have you seen anything about that? I've not. I don't know why that came to my mind there. I suppose in theory it could like, but I think for her theory to work, it would have to be like you were part of the same religious group. Right. So that okay. Lived at the ends of the world. So right, riddle me this: we gather a bunch of people, right? Me, you, everyone we know, a bunch of strangers, whatever. We gather in a big mass, and we all think at the same time let's create a storm or something or just create just think the same thing over and over could we in theory make that happen or do we think it's going to happen in our minds kelsey would say no but if we went out into the woods with a big group of people and we all believed that working together we could control the weather we might all think 
that we had caused a storm to happen or we'd caused it to snow and then it caused it to be sunny or whatever. But actually it's because we're all having a shared experience. So we're all hallucinating the same thing. Mm. I'd love to try that. Like I do think, I mean, I'm aware it's the exact opposite of something else that I've already said. I I get what she's saying. I do think there's something in it. I'm going to move on to the the next theory. Hold on, before you do can okay. I, can I, this is like, okay, say like, have you ever been to a football match, Mark? Yes, ever? unfortunately I have been to a football match. Right, so imagine, like, you remember, like, I've been to football matches quite a few times, I used to have a season ticket, I used to play Irox and see Glasgow Rangers, and I felt like there was a sort of collective consciousness of just, you know, people with all the same mindset, only on opposite, you know, opposite sides. Yes. So yeah. I would sit amongst all the Rangers fans and every time something happened with a ball or whatever, I didn't quite understand what they'd all go, oof, or ooh, or ah, oh, for fuck's sake. And and I found myself doing the same thing, but I didn't actually know why. <laughs> does that make sense? It does make sense, but then... Like I'm tapping into that? I feel like I've not had that experience because when I went to the football, my dad took me to a football game and I thought it was horrendous. But yeah, I remember you thinking... Can- Weird, you can feel the aggression else, yeah yeah it was yeah like the aggression in the air was mm. like actually a physical force yeah and it made me feel really uncomfortable and it makes me think that maybe that mass aggression is what leads to people to riot and fight as a collective consciousness that way or am I just am I talking pish? No, I think that makes sense because if she's saying like if you all if you get a large group of people together and your aim is to be like blissful and you all are blissful and you can then share in each other's bliss and it's like it's almost like a three dimensional yeah. solid kind of hallucinatory bliss, then yeah, why would why wouldn't it work the other way? I suppose in her research she probably wasn't looking into the negative version of it, but that seems to be the the negative version of it, yeah. I don't see any reason why if you could put yourself in a positive shared state, why couldn't you put yourself in a negative shared state? Yeah, so you're like tapping into different to the vibe the vibrations around you. But then I think as well it would have to be like yeah, you I don't know though, because she said again, if you look at the book thing, she said, right, if you're at a rave then even if you don't take any hallucinogenics, if lots of people bear on it, then you'll be moved into the same realm of thought. But then if we're talking about the aggression, and I think that is exactly the same thing, it would mean that everyone at a football match would automatically become aggressive, but not everyone does. So maybe she's right to an extent. Maybe maybe if everybody's having a shared experience, it connects a lot of people in a shared consciousness, but not necessarily every single person there. Okay, right, move on to the next thing before I just... (laughs) The second thing that came out of Durkheim's research was the idea of group mind. So I couldn't actually find who came up with the idea of group mind, but there's a couple of different people that have worked on it. Group mind is the belief that if you open your mind up to a group in a shared project, right, so you have to actively go, I want us all to, to have a shared experience, you have to have that thought. If you all do that, you all gain increased knowledge. So, like, if we were to travel back in time and you, me, and Yaz were doing a school project together on something, basically the idea is, like, if I was open to collaborating and so were you and so were Yaz, but I did very little, all three of us would still learn the same amount because 
we'd entered into something where we kind of agreed to share the same mind space. I don't know. Well, that seems a bit unfair. There's not really any evidence for it, to be fair. It's just a theory. <laughs> I don't really, I don't know what I think about it. Like, I don't really get that. It's like if I was in a maths class out full of maths geniuses, I don't think that would make me any more intelligent when it comes to numbers. Whereas I, I probably am capable of adding complex numbers in my head, but I put up barriers. I've got sort of number fear, <laughs> number one. <laughs> I get you. I also have number one. I have number one. And <laughs> it can't be cured. Well, then that would work. So the idea would basically be that if you, me, and Yaz all work together on a numerical project and we all agreed that we were like opening up our mind space to one another, then you and I would get better at maths because Yaz is good at maths. Wow. Um, I don't know if that would stand with me, but we could maybe try it yeah i mean i'm not I, I don't know how i feel about that one i don't know i'm not a yes i'm not a no i'm more convinced than i am of duke kind stuff but i'm not as convinced as i am by what kelsey said about raves and shared religious experiences and all that i mean i get the rave thing but the the project thing i don't know about i mean that's like if i was to have you yasmin and that in our in a studio where I'm making a teapot on the potter's wheel and then all of a sudden you guys are just like doing the same thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and actually you learn? in that context. Like generation game? Game, doesn't it? Yeah, because that wouldn't that wouldn't work like No. Because yeah. it takes years of dedication to get it right. You especially things like pottery or craftsmanship, I don't think it's possible to just know how to do something in a big but then you get like when oh, I'm thinking of China, you know, in the the Olympics. When was yeah. it? Before was it? Before oh, was it the Beijing Olympics? Was that 2008? Christ. No. <laughs> um, the opening ceremony was just like absolute, like absolute synchronization of all these drummers. It was incredible. But then, how long had they been practicing that? And then I suppose if or are they tuning in each other? Together, that's more you could argue that that's what Kelsey was saying rather than the idea of the group mind thing because you could say well that I know it's not a rave but basically they're all having a very organized dance party so yeah yeah everyone's kind of bought into the same what about line dancing (laughs) (laughs) I really like the idea of like yeah if you had a line dance but you just dropped LSD in one of the old ladies tea they would open the Axis Monday during their line dance. Oh, we need to set up a psychedelic line dancing class, Mark, where we all get like totally shit faced and access, yeah. Yeah, the Monday. Uh, yeah, let's have that as a What's... we can invite all of our listeners. We'll hide a hall. We'll obviously invite some old ladies that are professional line dancers and we'll have an LSD field. <laughs> <laughs> like Axis Mindy opening travel to another reality party. It would be good times. Oh. <laughs> okay, so we're we're what like two two no's and a, a maybe on these theories so far. So mm. the third one I looked at was the one that you already know a bit about. So uh Carol Jung. So he developed the theories of Durkheim further. He was a psychiatrist that was mostly active in the 1950s and 60s. 
Yeah, he is mostly famous for interpreting dreams, I think. Yeah. Whereas Freud was all about sex. Because of his work on dreams and his work on like unconsciousness, he basically took Durkheim's work and instead of looking at the idea of a collective consciousness, he started to look at the idea of a collective unconsciousness. So kind of what you were saying earlier, like, can people have shared dreams? But his work kind of went in a slightly different way and started to look at the belief that basically from when we're born, we all have what he called archetypes, which are, again, I'm going to explain this in a really weird way because it's really overly complicated. So it's like there are these 12 dream beings that exist in our unconscious minds from when we're born and as we develop into people like from not that I'm saying babies aren't people (laughs) from babies into like fully fledged people we slot people that we know or celebrities or fictional characters or supernatural beings into these 12 archetypes so he kind of believed in the idea of shared consciousness but he basically had this concept that perhaps all 12 archetypes, right, all 12 of these beings exist out there in some real form, or perhaps humans have all evolved to believe in these 12 different beings because we need the lessons that they teach. So who are they? Or what are they? I don't think there is a, a producer one. Hold on, I've got... There's like three of them that I want to look at in detail, but... I'll give you, well, there's 12 initial ones, there's 22 overall, but I'll give you 12 initial ones, except for the three that I want to look at in more detail, and you can tell me what you think about them. Okay, go for it. He believed that we all basically, like, worship, if you want, an innocent, an explorer, a ruler, Mm -hmm. a, a creator, a magician, a hero, a rebel, Oh, there is a, a lover. So, yeah, technically. Yes. Or it could slot into that. Um, could slot into that slot. Good sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the jester and the orphan, which is not one of the ones that I picked is interesting, but I might come back to that because I feel like that's a bit of a weird one. And then the three that I thought we should look at in more detail, just because I feel like when I looked at them, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get where he's coming from there. So the first one is the great mother. So he thinks that whoever you are from the moment you're born, you have this archetype in the back of your mind of the great mother mother, and you slot someone into it. So as examples of um, beings that are slotted into the great mother would be uh, people might slot Gaia in there. They might slot the Norns in there. They might slot the Virgin Mary in there. They might Isis. slot Cali in there. Uh, Isis. One of the other examples that he gave was Lilith, which I thought is, awesome. you know, to, to Lilith. He said that everyone either, again, has an actual living being or some sort of fictional character or godlike deity that's important to us. That is the Great Mother. And she quite often will be described as having brought either God or all of the gods of the, uh, sorry, Pluto start that again she will be thought of as either having brought god their gods or their universe into existence i totally agree with that she is important to us because she offers us the chance at redemption she's always linked to fertility so 
regardless of who she is, for you, she has something to do with either fertility itself or your fertility. And she has like a link to fruitfulness as well. So she'll be somebody that you would go to or reflect on if you wanted to know how to be more fruitful. Fruitful as in multiplying? uh, I think fruitful as in multiplying, but also fruitful as in like successful, but in a happy way. Yeah. Uh, see that's really interesting to me because it makes me when you were talking about that my mind went to uh, like imagining or picturing these the venuses the venus sculptures have you seen them they're kind of like fat looking women figures with big hips and arses and huge boobs and but no no discerning features on the face and these were first like the first deities that early man or early humans worshipped which is before the whole patriarchy thing or the you know the sort of male gods started taking over they worship female figures female deities it was a great mother and it was these venus figures and that developed into all these different examples that you're talking about and i think all regardless of what we call it the virgin mary isis venus aphrodite lilith i think it all means essentially the same you're tapping into the same energy or spirit yeah it's just under a different name lots of people who kind of work on his work now would say that seeing that there's sort of a modern movement for people who are less religious and either like atheist or spiritual to slot mother nature or the idea of just the natural world itself into that slot but we tend to feminize the natural world in a really positive way and I'm like, yeah. well, that makes sense because if you think of the natural world, okay, if you don't believe in God or gods, then that doesn't really make any sense. But yeah, the natural world birthed the earth. So that makes sense. The natural world is where human beings come from. So if you want like your gods of old, if they're actually people, then that's where they came from. The best way for humanity to redeem itself is through improving the natural world. Fertility is linked to nature. And then... I suppose you could argue if you want to be fruitful in happiness rather than in wealth, then maybe you want to, you know, be one of these people that goes out and like lives in a hut in the woods and grows all your own herbs and is a bit snow whitey. Like, I, yeah, I think it makes sense. Oh, there's the seagulls. There are the seagulls. <laughs> so they're, they're agreeing with you there? That's nature talking yeah. to you? She has sent them to confirm with us. that. They are, the great mother's talking to us right now. Sending a sign. Well, I move on to the second one because I think we both agree that, like, yeah, the, the great mother archetype that seems to make sense. Okay, so archetype number two that I wanted to look at is the anima. So the anima is an adro- androgynous archetype. If they are represented as somebody male, then they would be somebody who expresses the femininity and maleness. And if there's somebody who's represented as being female, there would be somebody who represents the masculinity and the feminine. And the anima is characterized by being attractive to all. So it's not the same as the lover. The lover tends to be if you're straight or if you're gay, but not if you're bi. Um, (laughs) Gender that you, the specific one gender that you're attracted to, right? If you're only attracted to one gender, then the idea of the lover is the the epitome of whatever that gender is that you're going to find very sexy whereas the anima is sexy because they are, are in fact they're sexier than the lover because they're not traditionally 
fitting into one of those gender roles. They're just someone that generally everyone's attracted to. Yeah. Regardless so of your like, sexuality, whether you're straight, gay, bi, whatever. It's just someone who oozes charisma. And it, it's that sort of, what's the word? Projecting pheromone. I don't know, just some sort of... Yeah, yeah, that is part of the idea. Like, they're, if you were with them, you would be attracted to them simply because of the pheromones. They, like poison ivy, right? <laughs> strangely enough. But I feel like poison ivy is a really, really good example of this because she tends to be, if she's drawn traditionally by a good artist, I feel like some people kind of over overly feminize her now, but she tended to be painted with like clearly a woman, but with broad shoulders and clearly like quite powerful and not really human or plant or animal. And that's part of it as well. Like the idea that she would release plant pheromones and animal pheromones to seduce right. people would fit in with this because there's the idea that they're not fully male, they're not fully female, but they're also not fully human. They're like something beyond human and there's something animalistic about them and there's something naturalistic about them. I feel like for some reason, even though I've not got into my list of who this applies to, I, I fancy the the concept of the anima is sexy. Yeah, I really like that. I'm, I'm thinking of like, see, the amount of men, like straight men that I've spoken to and I've said, well, who would you without question go gay for? Most of the time they say Elvis Presley, like a young Elvis. And... Do you, I don't know how you feel about that because I know you love Keanu, but yeah, a lot but, of men seem drawn to Elvis Presley for some reason as I feel like a Elvis beautiful Presley man. fall under that bracket and actually like the writings on it and um, some of the examples that are given, so I was going to give the religious ones, but like some of them do fit in with that because some of the examples that are given are Johnny Depp, uh, Charlize Theron, James that, Dean. These are all people I was thinking of. That's so weird. Yeah, Johnny so, Depp, definitely. All four of them, Maybe not now. <laughs> people who study the work of Jung, like they are, when I was reading through the, their papers and stuff on it, they were four of the examples that were brought up as, yeah, like these people that you tend to be kind of obsessed with for exactly the reason you said, like everyone thinks they're sexy. And I think, yeah, yeah. yeah Elvis would definitely fall into that category. Um, Dave I think, yeah, Perry would definitely fall uh, Annie Lennox. Prince. Prince. Everyone fancies like, Prince. Well, fancied Prince. No, nobody I know didn't think he was hot. Yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone that doesn't think Prince is sexy. Prince is clearly sexy. I actually think like Prince and Annie Lennox would be two good examples because I feel like Annie Lennox it's is quite sexy, androgynous. But she's very yeah. androgynous and she's got very masculine qualities and I think yeah. both of them naturalistic think, quality and almost animalistic quality. Yeah, I think the common theme is that they tend to sort of straddle the male and female look like genders, straddle genders, because they, they're very beautiful looking, they're very pretty, but they appeal to every gender. Yeah. It's hard to describe, it's more of a feeling. Ruby Rose might be like a modern example. I feel like she's really attractive, but in quite a masculine, masculine way. Masculine way. <laughs> about her. And I feel like Ruby Rose is somebody that like most people fancy or would find sexually attractive. Like there's definitely something appealing about her. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to talk to somebody like asexual on this because I wonder what their thought on the anima and on the lover like archetypes would be. Because I suppose if you're not, if you don't have any sexual attraction to anyone, then how would they work? 
but we can't answer that question because neither of us are asexual. And, no, I can't. I can't even imagine how that would be. Like, I don't even. To me, not being attracted to anything is just impossible. It's an impossible concept to me. I can't. I'm, I just cannot put myself in their shoes. Although I think that's rather empty. I'm saying, like, also weirdly, the four most common examples. Well, the four examples that Jung gave. I feel like at least three out of the four of them are gen- generally thought of as being kind of asexual. So the examples he thought of were that he gave, sorry, were Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, and Krishna. Uh, he said... I'm sorry, but Krishna's all... really hot. Yeah, Krishna's really hot. He <laughs> said, they're all in theory male, but their personalities and actions are all traditionally female. Mm. And all four of them are seen as someone who you would want to nurture you and would want to protect you. And all four religions that follow them have an almost kind of if you're very very holy it's as though you're married to them so there's almost a kind of sexual element there and also like quite a lot of old hindu writings buddhist writings muslim writings christian writings did have like a sexual element to them that's in the case of christianity um islam obviously been kind of watered down or even removed since the the kind of dawn of those religions but yeah Um, I, i get that and then oh, I think, Hind- Hinduism, there's so many racy stories in Hinduism. Remember there was one that was talking about his snake in the woman's cave or something? It was a lot of metaphors anyway. And, yeah, then, between, uh-huh, and then they, they've got the Kama Sutra and all this stuff. And I love how open they are about their sexuality in Hinduism. Like, they're just so open about it. I think that's healthy. But then, again, I think, like, the sort of modern criticism of christianity and um islam but if you go back there's a lot more yeah yeah it's I a lot think, more I that they were like sexual beings well i like, actually do think that jesus like really sexual i think jesus is a total set born dog like of course if, if you're going to go to, if you're going to send your living embodiment or your representation on earth to experience life as a human why would you not bang someone that's a yeah. fundamental human experience and you hung around um, with all those guys. Definitely well, yeah, banged we, one of them. Right. <laughs> like, this whole sort of idea that like everyone, even now that interacts with the idea of Jesus, seems like drawn to him. So yeah, it would seem odd that I would imagine that when he was alive, everyone, much like Annie Lennox or Bowie or whoever, like everyone would be attracted to him. So the idea that... He is kind of like a rock star though of the day because, you know, like David Bowie and he even sang about it in some of his songs. Marilyn Manson does it as well. Like rock stars are like sort of replacement godlike messiastic figures. People worship them on the stage, and some of them end up sacrificing themselves, and re- as a result of that, or get des- destroyed. Like Jesus, this might sound right, really outrageous, right? But there is a sort of similarity there. You know, like Kurt Cobain. A lot of people worship him. Yeah. Even more so because he shot himself. So he became like a sort of martyr, like the crucified rock star kind of thing, like the sacrificial lamb. I think you're right. Like, yeah, they're, I feel like kind of the, the rock star is the, the epitome example of that archetype because... People yeah, worship are, them, but they also want yeah, to destroy them at the same time. And they're worshipped by all these people. And yeah. They were these yeah. pheromones that draw you in and... Mm. And then they're gone, and that way they live on in memory forever. Like, like if you look at Mick Jagger, for example, 
Well, yeah, like exactly that. He's now just some crazy Ring old man. Yeah. yeah. But, I've never found him hot or sex sexy at all. Brian Jones, well, yeah. Like, but again, Brian Jones died. He's kind of all, yeah. all wins and leaf and wearing a lovely blouse. He was quite pretty, I have to admit, back in the sixties yeah. was quite nice. I feel like if Mac Jagger had like died when he was in right. his early thirties, then you would be like, Oh, he's an icon that like he's an androgynous icon, but yeah, now he's grown to be an old man, so yeah. like James Dean as well, because he was only was he twenty seven? I don't know. Well he was early twenties anyway, and um he was by bi- like a bicon, as you say. Like he yeah. was very I think he would come under the what is it called the the one you were talking about? Sorry, the an anima. Yeah, anima, definitely. He would represent an anima. Yeah, I think you're right because he was very masculine and he did look manly, but at the same time he did look really pretty and and yeah, masculine and there was yeah, a lot of homosexual especially in Rebel Without a Cause. If you've seen that movie, yeah, Salmonio yeah. is like this kid that really looks up to him and he's he's kind of, you know, obsessed with James Dean. But obviously James Dean is involved with Natalie Wood's character, but then they all sort of come together as some sort of threesome, like trio. Which I suppose is kind of almost anima-y. Like, I don't yeah. know. An, a, I wouldn't say anemic sex, but that means something <laughs> else. But like if you've got someone who's very traditionally masculine and someone who's very traditionally feminine, and then somebody who's masculine and feminine and they're all involved in a relationship and... Yeah, so would would you say that you're sold on the idea of the anima archetype? Would you say that exists? That yeah, everyone is an anima? Yeah. Um, yep. And then the other one that I looked at, which maybe <laughs> my character is now, is the wise old man. So, Jung <laughs> uh, said that we all have an older man that we idolise that is kind and fatherly and wise, but isn't your normally isn't your own dad and the reason for that is he is and I'm going to use Jung's words here he is a foreigner so it's quite often somebody that's from another culture or that is racially different from you and you almost kind of are being like positive racist where you're like oh you are not the same race as me or you are not from the same culture as me and you're kind and wise and fatherly and you so it's a bit like the sort of cliche of the old American Native American chieftain or something, yeah. and he's imposing his wisdom upon you, or the the sort of uh, the older elder Indian guru. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those two would both one hundred percent fit into it. Whereas our dads uh, definitely wouldn't. I mean, imagine Ronnie being a wise old man. I don't think so. <laughs> And my dad, the, the big orange, the, he thinks he's the king. Yeah, no. um, <laughs> some of the examples um, are Confucius, Abraham, Moses, mm. Merlin, Odin, and my favourite one, John Hammond from Jurassic Park. No, he's an arsehole. <laughs> he, he put his kids in danger. He, put, he's, he was a selfish bastard. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't like say him. that he was He's being a megalomaniac. or wise or fatherly, but, but I enjoyed that he was on the list. <laughs> I don't know. Out I of the don't really... Uh, yeah, out of the three, I think we're thinking the same thing. I don't really relate to the wise old man. I'm more of relate to the mother, the great mother. 
yeah, I can't, I can't think of anyone that I do idolise that would fall into the wise old man category at all. The only one I like is Michael Michael Palin. Oh, actually, you know what? Now that you've said that, David Attenborough. Yeah. So, but that. I don't know why that didn't But funnily enough, I think we both sort of chose people who have travelled a lot. Yeah. Like Michael Palin is famous for being in Monty Python and being a comedian, but before I knew him as a Monty P- a Python, before my dad introduced me to that group um, comedy trip, I knew him as the guy who went around the world in 80 days or went and visit, went from pole to pole, like South Pole to North Pole throughout like loads of travel logs and he seemed like this kind of sort of kindly wise old man older man he has an old man now but i think you're right like what i like about david attenborough is that he's had such an amazing and impressive life and i'd like to do half the things he's done and see half the things he's seen but also i would say yeah definitely with their whole they're kind they're wise they're fatherly i'm like yeah i feel like he does come across as a very kind person he is obviously intelligent and he loves so animals. Back what I previously said, there is I I do have a wise old man obsession. He is my archetype. I think you could probably find an archetype in all of them. Like for instance, who would the lover be in your life? Keanu Reeves. You bringing him up? The description of the lover, and we'll see if we can find anyone that fits what about in. the orphan. Well, actually, yeah, we'll do the orphan first, and then yeah, do the, do the orphan because I'm intrigued about that. Okay, so we all have an orphan archetype. So the orphan archetype. Uh, is an archetype that walks around with open wounds, right? So we all have somebody, uh, quite often someone younger in our lives, um, they feel betrayed by the world, they're disappointed at their lot, they're literally injured, they need other people to take charge of their life, they want other people to take charge of their life, they need somebody to end the disappointment for them, they want, and we tend to pick someone, so when you're picking some somebody or some fictional character to slot into this archetype for you it tends to be somebody that reminds you of you in some way and um, there's somebody that's often victimized and innocent and again jesus would also be an example of that yeah i feel like that archetype does apply to me but then obviously it would be difficult for it not to because i work with children so <laughs> so yeah i do obviously know children that don't have good lives that i want to help but i don't know if that applies to everyone or just people that work with kids yeah I don't, I don't know. That one's a puzzling one to me. Like, is there any, or is there a, I don't know, the idea it could be a character as well. Mm. I can't think of a fictional character that you would. No. I suppose lots of people, like, part of the reason that, you know, adopt a child, adopt a person in the third world, adopt a family that needs help with their farm, adopt a snow leopard, adopt a whatever, that Mm. would get into that, wouldn't it? Or someone who's obsessed with charities and yeah, I suppose yeah, it's like the embodiment of charity. So we all as human beings need someone or something to help. So if that's missing, you find someone or something to help. So this is gonna that... make me. I don't know. It makes me sound like a sociopath, but I don't have any feelings towards that. Do you not have like a an adopting animal animal, or did I just make that up? No, no. I've never done that. <laughs> I think you're. Like... <laughs> I mean, I've adopted a couple of cats that, that come in at my garden every night. <laughs> Look I mean, after them. I cut, I cut a slug off its tail because it needed help. Maybe. I mean, if I was, if I were, what? Is it cue ball? Eight ball? It's cue ball. Cue ball came for help and 
she had a, a big slug thing attached to her tail and I tried to take it off but it was kept sticking so I had to actually get some scissors and actually cut the slug off her and she still comes back and I fed her bits of ham but eight balls more interested in David he actually like she I call it she I think they're all female um, she actually decided to climb up on David's lap and just cuddle him for about 15 minutes maybe she's your orphan I see those two cats this is going to sound really weird, but I actually see them as spirit animals. Like they come in and they they somehow connect with me and David, and they just want to guard the house. But then I think that you thinking about them in that way does then kind of make them fill that role. Like again, I think Ewan's right because you are looking after them and you're giving them what you need, but you're also like giving them an almost spiritual element, whether that's true or in your mind. So mm. the cats are yeah. your. I feel like they're they're really comforting. Like we've been stressed out trying to like build this kitchen, rebuild this kitchen and fix it up and everything. Having just moved into this house. And then here comes these cats to calm us down and a bit like therapy. Like therapy animals. I feel like they've just I don't know, like they're meant to be there. They've been sent to me. It's all, like it's almost like a sort of act of worship. Yeah. Type thing. Yeah, I feel like again. I quite like the union idea as well because it's almost like everyone has their own personal pantheon of gods and I like that it can just be made up of anything. Like, yeah, your your pantheon of gods are like David Bowie, the two cats <laughs> your garden. <laughs> but it makes me think, yeah, I can understand why the Egyptians worship cats because there's just something about them that seem magical. And I wonder if from the ancient Egyptian pantheon, if you want, even though the I know they had cat gods, but mm. always like Bast is kind of the animus, isn't she? Yeah, but they've also got Sekhmet, who's a lioness, and they've got Mathis, who's was the male version of Bast. Have they got any other cat-like people? I don't think so. I feel like is there one called like Bess or Bez? <sighs> yeah, that's a hippo. Is that a cat? Is it like a hippo? No. Body or did I just make that up? It's not. It's like a monk. It's a weird thing. It's like a, it's like an ugly kind of. It's like a cross between a hippo and it's got a crocodile that straddles its back and it helps pregnant women give birth to their babies. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a statue of her of Bez that I got in Egypt and it is a strange looking creature, but it is a mixture of all of them. It does have a it does have a crocodile on its back and it's got like a big belly, like a hippo. I'd quite like to not just now because obviously that would take many hours and it would just be us researching and we wouldn't be saying much and no one would get anything out of it. <laughs> Interesting to look at the like twelve archetypes and see if they do match up with most pantheons of gods. I imagine yeah. they probably like again, I think it is quite a good idea. Um, I looked yeah. at the lover while yeah. we were talking there. It's not that interesting. It's basically just what we thought it was. So mm. pretty much it's like who you are like weirdly obsessed with when you're wee. So gender, if you're not bi. Well, this, uh, I'm not saying this. Um, sorry, I am saying this for Jung. He doesn't have if you're not bi noted all the way through his things. <laughs> but yeah, gender, if you're not bi, that you're attracted to. They're the, like this being is the epitome of beauty for you in every sense of the word. Their beauty above all beauty. You know that they are all art, so they're. Um, you believe them to be all loving. You believe them to be all sensitive, oh, and their their purpose is for you to lavish love on them. And then the examples uh, like Aphrodite. But for so, me, yeah. when I was five, that 
to me was Christopher Lee's Dracula. I was obsessed with him. I absolutely adored him. But he's not exactly a loving figure. <laughs> he's a vampire that drinks blood and has red eyes. I but feel he's like also incredibly handsome. The animus than the lover, though. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because he exudes sexuality. But as a five-year-old, did I, do you think I sensed that? That's a bit odd. Maybe. Well, they said that's the idea that we're born with all of them in the back. Oh, of right, so, right. You can think, you can... So the lover's not... The animus is sexy. The lover's beautiful. So technically is sexy, but that's not... You don't think of them as sexy. You want to give all your love to them. Oh, I don't Why really do you know who that... that... I'm thinking of Taylor Swift, who I'm not attracted to. Fuck that. <laughs> I think it's because of the bit of it. It says, uh, all they want is love. I'm They're thinking of the, the love of They want to be lavished with love. I feel like that's like... That should be Taylor Swift's Twitter bio. Like, hi, I'm Taylor. All I want no, is love. No, I, I don't. I, I think Taylor Swift's a mega bitch, and I don't oh, agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that I think she's all loving. I'm saying that I think she wants people to lavish love upon uh, her. All. Yeah, she does come across that way. Yeah, she could be like Aphrodite's evil sister. Right, where, where are we heading for this? Uh, okay, so last bit, because, yeah, we're... We're pretty much at, at time now, I think, yeah. So the last bit, sure, it's the idea that one of the bits of proof of collective unconsciousness is mass hysteria. So mass hysteria, for anyone listening that doesn't know, is the phenomenon of transmitted collective illusions or threats. So it's basically the idea that everyone in a group believes that they are being threatened by the same thing which is non-existent. So I've got three very short examples, mm-hmm. which I should yeah. uh, Okay, so first one is the strawberries with sugar virus. Have you heard of this before? No. Okay, so in 2006, over 300 pupils at 14 different schools came down with a virus featured on the popular Portuguese teen drama, Strawberries with Sugar. It's basically like the Portuguese version of Hollyoaks. Oh, I thought you meant like strawberries and sugar was the actual disease. <laughs> no, it wasn't strawberries, strawberries and sugar. So it was called after the TV show, right? So the TV show is called Strawberries with Sugar, and it's basically like the Portuguese Hollyoaks, right? Okay. Um, and for okay. international listeners who aren't Portuguese or British, that means nothing, but it's a teen drama. So the life-threatening virus, that was a very weird way for me to say threatening, threatening, the life-threatening virus <laughs> caused a rash, followed by difficulty breathing and extreme dizziness. It was That's also completely complete fictional. Mm. Yeah, totally fictional. And when the Portuguese National Institute for Medical Emergencies looked into it, they found that zero of the 300-plus teens had anything wrong with them. Right. So people who believe in collective unconsciousness would say that because, like you said, it entered their dreams, it was in their shared mindscape that this virus that had uh, spread like wildfire through this show, and it ended up in, and again, this was at 14 different schools across Portugal, over 300 uh, pupils came down with the virus that didn't exist, right, none of them had it. Another example of this would be the 2010 uh, gin possessions, so in late April, early May in 2010, Teachers and people in the community surrounding two schools in Brunei became concerned by, and this is a quote, the large number of girls uncontrollably screaming, shaking, 
fainting and being unable to stop crying because, I'm still quoting here, they had been possessed by jinns. As in, like, genies, jinns. As in genies, yep. Yep. So, again, doctors looked at all of the girls and found that none of the girls had anything at all wrong with them. So there's kind of double mass hysteria there. There's the idea that all these different communities in Brunei believed that their school children were possessed by jinns, but there's also the pupils themselves that believed that they had some sort of illness that caused them to uncontrollably scream, shake, and faint, and be unable to stop crying when actually there was nothing wrong with them at all. And in both cases, the strawberries with sugar disease and the gin disease, once the kids were told that there was nothing wrong with them, after a short amount of time, they just went back to normal. And then, sorry. No, no, I'm just going to say I'm really interested to hear what the third one is. Okay, the third one's my favourite, obviously, because I get to the last. I feel like it's (laughs) to send us out, you know, like the end of it. Drum roll. The Halifax Slasher in the 1930s. (laughs) Do you know of the Halifax Slasher? No, but it reminded me of the the Enema Bandit. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but so, it's got a name. The Cincinnati, I think it was the Cincinnati Enema Bandit. Uh, it was a guy that he would uh, he would go in and rob you, and then he would give you an enema and then fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he wasn't robbing you. Like enemas are quite expensive if you go and get one private. Maybe. <laughs> Okay, so I'll tell you about the Halifax slasher. So, in Halifax in 1938, a woman claimed that she had been attacked by a male apparition who was carrying a mallet and that his most distinguishable feature is that he had glowing bright buckles on his shoes. (laughs) Okay, so the police were obviously like, the woman's traumatised because she's been attacked with a mallet wouldn't have been an apparition right so they were very dismissive of what happened but they still obviously took her statement and so on and started investigating who this person was wielding a mallet a few days later a second woman was attacked by a man with the same ghostly shiny shoed mallet wielding appearance so the police then thought right there's something going on here there were 10 other similar attacks though sometimes the victim was stabbed with a knife and on other occasions attacked with a razor blade but it was all carried out by a similar apparition and each of the 12 victims were either hit with a hammer, sorry, with a mallet, um, stabbed with a knife or cut with a razor. That Over the next really familiar. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but in my mind, because we have collective consciousness, oh, so, imagine Mark, that you've heard of this one. Mark, when did this take place? What year? 1938. Right. Now, I'll let you finish this, but I... I'm going to tell you why I, find, I, I know this. I know this story. Okay. I've heard it before. Okay, right, carry on. So over the next 13 days, Scotland Yard were called in and while they were investigating, one of the victims approached them and admitted that he had actually cut himself with the razor blade. When he was asked why he'd done this, he said he was doing it for attention. They announced this and within the next three days, all 12 assaults had been retracted with each and every victim admitting that they had stabbed, cut, or hit themselves with a mallet, and all 12 victims stating that the reason that they did this was because they wanted some attention. Oh, wow. So, again, I just found that really, really interesting. So that would be an example of mass hysteria where everyone has this shared need 
the idea that they need to have immediate attention and this shared made up figure that's assaulting them in order to get the attention. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. So that's that's really interesting because where you were talking about women getting hit by a mallet or slashed, I remember reading in the 14 times that of a story in the 18th century of loads of women who claimed that something was slashing at their their arse, basically. There was like in London somewhere, there was a period where all these women were getting randomly attacked with a knife, but they were slashed always in like their backside or their hips or something. It was always in the same place. And they put it down. Nobody ever found out who it was. And I'm just wondering whether that's a similar story. Did they make that up for attention or was there genuinely someone going around slashing them? I mean, maybe it is another example of mass hysteria because the reason I thought that um, strawberries and sugar and the gin possession were interesting is because it's basically the same story, but at two different times in two different places. So maybe the Halifax slasher and the London butt slasher are are the same. And also there was... um but the same like made up idea have you heard of and this goes way way back which obviously gives your theory credence or his theory credence because i think this happened in like the 1500s or something where there was like some sort of dancing disease where people would start dancing and they couldn't stop and then it spread throughout this village and more and more people kept dancing to the point they danced until they were exhausted and died but nobody could figure out what was causing it, and they think it was just some sort of, like you say, mass hysteria, and they were all just... A, like the witch hunting in Salem, one, yeah, one yeah. girl starts accusing someone of being... Possess- like, or saying they're possessed by the devil, or being cursed, and they all start it. Yeah, because you'd think that if someone was evil enough to have like their friend burned at the stake, mm. that's something that everyone's going to jump on board with, but it is... Like, mass hysteria is clearly a real thing. So I think it's a good bit. Again, the I've now completely forgotten her name because we've spoken about a billion and one other people since I said her name. Where is her name? I'm just going to sing a random song about where her name is. Drugs uh, Mary Kelsey. Um, yeah, so Mary Kelsey, like, I think her findings were quite convincing. But I think, actually, mass hysteria is the best bit of evidence for the idea that we do have these shared thoughts i think as well the the halifax slasher the fact that not all 12 of the people actually knew each other and yeah that's kind of like the witch hunts if you want in a way because yeah the idea that you would read in the paper that it's just very strange so the first person that was a victim hit themselves with a mallet but then that means it's at least a few of the other victims read in the paper that this person had been hit with a mallet by this ghostly apparition with glowing shoes and they didn't know that that was fake and didn't know that they were just doing it for attention and then went and got their own mallet and beat themselves up to get attention. That's mad. It just, that does seem to be collective consciousness, like everyone's would, having this nonsensical thought. Would that apply to people who claim they've been abducted by aliens? I mean, arguably, yeah, if they haven't actually been abducted by aliens, but if they're genuinely convinced that they have and if they've got the traditional this is what being abducted by aliens is like, description of what happened to them. Anal if probes. they really, really believe that, then yeah, that <laughs> could just be collective consciousness. They're having that sort of share. Uh, I think I get it then. I think I get it. Um, it's, a, it's a very abstract concept to get your head around, but I think 
I think it's one for everyone out there to have a good old think about, maybe do some research into into Carl Jung and some of the things that we've brought up. I would um yeah, I would recommend looking into that dancing craze yeah. in the fifteenth sixteenth century. That was extremely weird. And I suppose like cults and religions, they all start off small and then get they spread and spread until it's worldwide and everyone's sort of got a collective consciousness about it. Like yeah, I've known yeah. I mean from the day I've bought I was born, I suppose that Christianity was always around and I was aware of it until I decided to think of my own opinions or break away from that. Like I just thought, all right, Jesus, everyone thinks about Jesus. Everyone worships the same person. Like I didn't have any idea that there was something else other than Jesus out there. And according to Jung, the thing other than Jesus for you was uh, Prince. Prince. Jarvis <laughs> <laughs> uh, Walker. Oh, good choice. I think we should probably like wrap up yeah. here, but before we yeah. do, and um, obviously this episode has been a lot of of me talking, and next episode is going to be a lot of Leslie talking because basically because I'm going to put Lockery from first thing in the morning until just before Leslie and I record the next episodes. So what are you planning to look at in the next episode, Leslie? I want to talk about Greek myths and Ooh. legends. Let's get all traditional on this shit. Um, end to that. So I want to talk about the many arsehole things that Zeus did. He is a bad bastard. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm in. Okay. That works well because I feel like obviously you'll be much more knowledgeable because you're going to go away and research it, but mm-hmm. there will be I'll be able to chip in. So yeah, Is Jasmine going to be there as well? Or is this our Wednesday, Wednesday recording yeah, session? Yeah, so we're going to start recording on Wednesday nights and Yaz said that she can record with us on Wednesday nights, so it means that okay. she'll be a host okay. rather than a silent host. Alrighty then. So yeah, that was collective consciousness, and I'll be yammering on about uh, Zeus and his many wicked ways on the poor people of Greece and the people of Earth. There's a Facebook group that we've got a lot of people joining, but I need more interaction. I want people to talk to each other and be friends and have a daft laugh in that. So yeah, like just talk to us, man. Don't be shy. Suggested topics as well, like if there's anything you particularly think that we should look at then let us know and we'll do it yeah yeah exactly and mark i don't know how but i think if you could try and link the instagram page to the facebook group because i think you can do that but i might try and do it but it's because you own the instagram page so i don't know how that would work i also don't know how to do that but i will give it a bash to be fair guys i've not put in on the instagram page for like three weeks yeah and as you all know, my dad is a house brownie, so it's very difficult to do these things because it'll just like stick sticks in your hair and I feel like this isn't even really a joke. <laughs> the main reason I haven't done the Instagram for You have weeks. to keep your dad happy, otherwise yeah. he'll turn into a bog art and you really don't want that. <laughs> it was fine when we were recording because I said I'm going to record with Leslie and Yaz and he was like, Oh Leslie and Yaz, lovely girls. But yeah. <laughs> And he's like, put your phone down! And he'll like throw water balloons and stuff. So Just feed him some scrambled <laughs> eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, bye! bye.
stress. So 